This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Galton Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with conservation specialists relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. We are talking today with George Worthner, professional photographer, writer, and ecologist. George has studied wildfire ecology as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student, studying with one of the major researchers who dealt with fire and climate issues. George has written more than two dozen books on various environmental topics, including several books on fire, after studying local fire regimes and literatures. His latest book is Protecting the Wild. He's a board member of a number of environmental organizations and is currently the Ecological Projects Director for Foundation for Deep Ecology. George, it's good to, good to be back talking with you again about wildfire in the, in the country. So first question I wanted to ask you is, what can tree rings tell us about the history of wildfires in America? Well, tree rings, the, the, the common way that fire history uh, past fire history is determined is by looking for trees, wandering through a forest and look for trees that have what's called a fire scar. What, what that means is there was a fire, but it didn't kill the tree. It only burned partway through the bark. And then the tree's response is to cover over that wound and continue growing. And then years later, you can either core the tree or cut it down and you can see where there was a fire or several fires and the growth afterwards. And therefore, you can count the, uh, and each year, as people know, uh, the tree adds a, 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 a line of growth. So you can count the tree rings and say, oh, here was a fire in 1900, and then here's another fire in 1950, and then another fire in 2000. And then you would say, oh, okay, so there were three fires uh, over a 100-year period, um, and the average interval is about 50 years between the fires. Uh, and so that is how fire scars are used. Now, there are some people who challenge the validity of fire scar histories mm. and suggest that they tend to exaggerate the frequency of fires because they have certain built-in biases. An example is you're looking for the trees that are scarred, so what about all the trees that don't have scars? <laughs> uh, did they not get burned? Maybe, maybe the interval is longer. Maybe you're picking out um, the, the, the one tree that, you know, there are certain trees that get hit by lightning more frequently, for example. So maybe you're picking out the trees that uh, just happen to get struck by lightning more frequently. And every, the, the other way it's done is what they call is composite fire scars. So, they have the tree I just mentioned that might have a fire in 1900, 1950, and 2000. If they find another tree that has a fire scar in 1925 and uh, 1975, then they would uh, use those two fire scars together and say, well, the fires were every 25 years. And you can see that the more documented fires you can have in different years, the the, the uh, more frequently that occur, occurs in the, uh, you will shorten the fire interval. So some people suggest that a lot of these fire studies um, misrepresent what's happened. Uh, the other problem is 
it's sort of like the old saying about, uh, where was it? Uh, there was a bank robber in the 1930s. They asked him why he robbed banks, and he said, that's where the money is. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's sort of the same thing in fire scars. You're, you're walking through the forest, and you're going to places that are have likely to have burned in the past. So you, you may not be in an area that represents the sort of the landscape as a whole, but what happens is when these fire scars are published or done, the, uh, a lot of times people extrapolate from them and say, okay, we had a fire every 25 years in our study, and that's what the fire intervals were on all the land around us, when in fact maybe, say, the valleys below where this was done are moister, and maybe their fires only happen every 100 years. So that's a problem. So uh, during most of the 20th century, uh, uh, there was a program of fire suppression. Uh, has fire suppression created unnaturally dense forests? Uh, to what extent is, is fire suppression in in the in the 1990s uh, or the, in the 20th century contribute to forest fire severity in the in the 21st? Well. Here's one of the things that I would say. If you look at the climate weather of the last century, in other words, 1900, 2000, mm -hmm. um, there is a real variability in the acreage burned uh, decade by decade. And the whole um, the early part of the last century, in the 1900s, like, as you probably know, there was a major fire in Idaho and Montana called the 1910 burn, or what they call the, the big burn, burned over 3 million acres of land in just a few days. That was during a period when it was warmer and drier. And then in about the 1940s, uh, a cool spell driven by offshore, what they call the Pacific De Decadal Oscillation, offshore masses of water and how it influences the climate. In any event, that uh, period of time from the 1940s through about the 1980s, was a period of much cooler temperatures. In fact, in the 1970s, NASA scientists were predicting a new ice age. Glaciers were expanding the Pacific Northwest on Mount Hood, Mount Rainier, etc. And people thought we were going back into another ice age because it was so cool and moist. And that's exactly the time when the Forest Service and other advocates of the, quote, fire suppression explanation that exact time when there were fewer fires and less fire spread. But I would argue nature was doing a good job of fire suppression then, mm -hmm. and we're assuming we take credit for it, when in fact, if we had done nothing, we would have still seen a lot less fire acreage burn during that time period. And then in the late 80s and into the 1990s and so forth, the human-caused climate warming factor of all the carbon emissions into the atmosphere started to catch up with us, and we've gotten increasingly larger fires because the, uh, the temperature and climate now is warmer and drier, and it is driving these large fires. And I would say that fire suppression ha has had a lot, you know, it probably had an effect in some places, but a lot less effect than, than people suggest. Another consequence of moisture, cooler conditions is that you had a higher survival of tree seedlings during that time period. So when you say the forests are denser today, it could be as much denser as a result of higher seedling uh, establishment and survival that occurred during that cool, moist period than anything else.
So how heated is the fire suppression argument uh, going on today? Well, every time I read stuff in the media, almost always they mention fire suppression as the reason we have these large fires. And some will admit, will talk about climate and so forth, too. But the fact is, is that in most forest ecosystems, and again, this is sort of something I mentioned in the last interview, uh, the majority of vegetation types around the West just do not naturally burn very frequently. And when they're not burning, yeah, they, the, the fuels are accumulating. In other words, biomass is accumulating. But that's a natural situation. So in, for example, uh, the, a subalpine fir forest in the northern Rockies, they only burn every two, 300, 400 years. And during that time period, and that's the natural fire interval, you're going to get more and more, quote, fuel buildup. But that's a totally natural situation. It is not the result of fire suppression because fires, whether we're there to suppress them or not, wouldn't occur in most of those landscapes. And if they do occur because it was cool and moist, uh, the, the fires don't spread much and they often self-extinguish. So there's a, there's a misunderstanding of this whole idea of fire suppression and its influence. The same thing, just going to the other extreme of, High elevation is sagebrush e ecosystems. Um, it used to be thought that sagebrush burned every 20 to 30 years, mm -hmm. uh, and that has, has been revised to where now it's, depending on the species, it's anywhere from every, you know, 75 years to, to four or 500 years between fires. So uh, sagebrush doesn't naturally burn very frequently. So uh, you don't need suppression to explain why you might have fuel buildup, because fuel buildup is, is what naturally happens in a lot of these ecosystems. Uh, there currently, I believe, is a, is a proposal for logging in Yosemite. Of course, there's a fire going on right now, uh, but uh, uh, what, what's your comment about the logging proposal in Yosemite? Uh, I, I am opposed to it because of uh, I, the, the, the management uh, policies of the Park Service is to allow evolutionary uh, processes to operate on these landscapes. And to me, that's interfering with it. It'd be like saying, I'm going to go out and kill the wolves in Yellowstone because I want to see more elk there because they're having too much of an impact on elk populations. And some reason, I think there should be more elk. Um, it's a similar situation in Yosemite. Yosemite it, like a lot of the Western Sierra, is experiencing these conditions that favor large fires. Mm. And that is sort of the natural condition. And what we're seeing across the whole West, not just in Yosemite, and I think this is an important point to make, is we see the vegetation adapting to warmer and drier conditions. We may not like those warmer and drier conditions. I, I don't. I would like to see it get cooled down again. But, uh, but what what way nature responds to those conditions? It, it only supports so much vegetation, so you have drought, and the drought causes mortality of vegetation. Um, drought and uh, also tends to uh, increase beetle attacks. The beetles key in on trees that are weakened by drought, killing uh, and causes mortality. And then, of course, wildfires occur more frequently. All these things are a way, the natural way, to uh, 
help the vegetation adapt to the new climatic conditions. You know, it, it might be one thing if I thought, okay, let's go in here and if we could uh, prevent some fires for 10 years and then suddenly we know it's going to be another ice age, eh, that might be worthwhile. But I don't necessarily see any end in sight right now. And we need the vegetation to adapt to drier conditions. That might mean in some places you don't have trees anymore. You, you just get grasslands instead because it can't support trees anymore. It would also mean perhaps that, uh, uh, you know, that all these trees have genetic adaptations to different conditions. So it might mean that you get a lot of trees dying from drought, for example, but the trees that didn't die perhaps, and in often cases, have some genetic adaptation that allows them to maybe extract water from soil a little better than the other trees that died. And now we have those trees uh, surviving and reproducing. But if you go in there and log, you don't know which trees have a genetic adaptation to drought. Uh, some trees have an adaptation that allows them to resist bark beetles, for example. You can't tell by looking at a tree which tree has that adaptation. So you go in there and you log log a bunch of the trees or thin the forest and take out 50% of the trees, you might just be take degrading the forest's ability to adapt to the new climatic and, and, and conditions that exist and will be there in the future. And, and it's funny because agencies like to say they're increasing the resilience of forests by thinning and so forth, but they're actually degrading the ability of the forest to survive the new conditions. So uh, does the removal of, uh, of vegetation, uh, d d does that have a difference in terms of the severity of a fire? Uh, if, it's, if, it's been, if the vegetation has been cleared out or if the forest has been thinned as opposed to uh, a forest that's uh, maturing naturally? Um, it, it all, you know, it's kind of a, depends on the circumstances and uh, and this is a lot of the nuance. Um, how recently you did something like, let's say thinning, I'll use that as an example, um, or, or, or say a prescribed burn. Mm -hmm. you, let's say you do, do a prescribed burn and you burn through at a lower severity. What that does actually, six months from now, there's not much fuel there. So that might be a positive thing if your goal is to stop, stop fires. But Three years from now, five years from now, you will likely have more biomass there, more grass and shrubs, the very fine fuels that carry fires than you had previous to the thinning event and the burning event. And so um, it's really important because the timing of when these things are done really does affect how effective they are. And this gets back to the probability issue if you have naturally long intervals between fires in most ecosystems, uh, I'll just use, you know, lodgepole pine forest. I go around here and I see where the forest surface is thinning, lodgepole pine forest, where the fire rotation might be a couple hundred years naturally. Well, long before a fire is likely to start there and get started, the trees are going to grow back. So you're, you're just sort of like spinning your wheels trying to, to stop fires, and nobody can predict where the fires are going to be. So if, it's not that I'm, I'm totally opposed to these thinning operations, but they should be concentrated right near a community, not miles away, which is the situation in most of these thinning operations. 
I've read that uh, 140 million trees have been killed in California because of drought or insect infestations, uh, 2.4 million of those in Yosemite alone. Uh, should those dead trees be taken out, be removed? Well, two things. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the snag forests that result after uh, a wildfire or uh, drought or insects are some of the most important uh, habitats in, in in these ecosystems. There are more species that depend on dead trees in a lot of these forest ecosystems than on live trees. So to remove, you know, if they've died, removing them is uh, taking out wildlife habitat. The second thing is is that particularly once um, the needles fall off, and most of these are conifer trees. Once the needles fall off of the trees. Uh, they are pretty resistant to fires because, uh, the, you know, uh, just a tree snag doesn't burn readily. And we know this from our experiences with campfires. If you put a big log just on a, on a, try to start it with a match, it won't burn at all. And even if you have a fire going, it has, you have to keep the coals underneath that log to keep it burning. And when the coals disappear, the, the log stops burning. And so, uh, they're very resistant to fires uh, and are less likely to burn than um, uh, an area that uh, ha- has a lot of green vegetation. And there's a reason for that, and that is, is among conifers at least, um, the, uh, the, the sap in conifers tends to have resins that are highly flammable mm-hmm. so that under drought conditions, again, the extreme drought is what causes this, um, they are more likely to burn uh, than a, a, a dead tree that doesn't have the resins anymore mm. and, and doesn't have the fine fuels, the needles, and so forth on it. So uh, there's no reason to do the removal, and it just uh, inc- uh, takes away wildlife habitat that's important to a lot of species of, uh, from insects all the way up to you know, birds and mammals. Uh, I'll give you one example, John. Uh, this is a number of years ago. I was uh, walking through uh, a part of Yellowstone Park, and uh, every log on the ground uh, was torn apart by grizzly bears looking for ants that inhabit these down logs. And and there had been a fire through that area maybe 50 years before, and a lot of the trees had fallen to the ground, and, uh, and now were in, uh, had ant uh, colonies in them. And so who would have thought that a fire 50 years ago would be creating food and habitat for grizzly bears 50 years later? Mm. But that's the kind of thing that goes on. Uh, and if those trees had been cut, removed, that, that bear would have found a lot less food for itself uh, in the summer. Currently, I've seen on the Internet that uh, there are 10 western states that, cur- that have uh, 50 or more fires, wildfires going on currently. This time, California has 306. How does that affect wildlife? Do most wildlife escape the fire, or uh, are there mortalities that uh, are common in those wildfires? Yeah, um, and that's a lot of concern of a lot of people. But what we have seen from wildfires in numerous places is that, well, first of all, when do most wildfires happen? They happen, you know, during the drier part of summers, except in the southwest, like New Mexico and and Arizona, where fires are more common in June and spring. But in general, 
the fires occur after, for example, birds and small mammals and other things have already gotten to the point where they can flee. In other words, birds can fly away. You know, deer are mobile. They can run mm. uh, and so forth. And most fires, campfire by paradise is one exception. Most fires are easily outrun by the larger animals and then real small animals like I don't know, chipmunks and ground squirrels and all, they're burrowed into the ground and um, can avoid usually the heat because heat rises, not doesn't penetrate very deep. So if you're a couple of feet down into the ground, you're probably pretty safe from the fire. And the irony is after the fire, they're pretty small mammals really increase a lot because you get all this regeneration of flowers and shrubs and they're all producing seeds, which in turn, you know, the chipmunks and and ground squirrels feed on, and then that provides food for spotted owls and, and uh, you know, arten and, and other kinds of predators. So the aftermath of a fire often leads to an increase of these species. Uh, in Yellowstone in 88, there was, um, there was some mortality of elk documented and a few other species too, but uh, it wasn't from the fire directly. It was from they got trapped in a valley with too much smoke and died from asphyxiation not from the uh, itself. Right. So uh, given the forecast of, uh, of drought continuing in the West, uh, do you have any recommendations for what needs to be done going forward? Yeah, um, sort of as I previously mentioned, uh, really thinking hard about how and where we build homes. Uh, I, I, I think we should be restricting home building in these areas um, outside of major urban areas, uh, Oregon, for example, has statewide zoning, and uh, you, you simply just can't build a house any place you want. Uh, it has to be in a, um, a designated area that, uh, you know, where usually on the edge of a city, uh, so you don't have this expansion of subdivisions, you know, haphazardly across the landscape. The uh, but but that could, that is one thing that could be done is. Put limits on that. Another thing that could be done, since a lot of fires um, start from these power lines, you could be burying power lines, but particularly to isolated homes. And maybe uh, one of the things that you do is you charge the homeowner or the, the subdivider for putting in buried power lines. I'll tell you, that will become a real limitation on building in, in rural areas because that increases the cost. Uh, so some people would refuse to pay it, and then they then you say, okay, well, I'm not going to build here then. Uh, a third thing that can be done is instead of spending money on all this thinning and so forth uh, that's out in the hinterlands, uh, provide loans, uh, maybe maybe no interest loans uh, to homeowners, or maybe even just money to them. We're already subsidizing timber cutting in the hinterlands subsidize homeowners to modify their homes to make them more resistant to fire, uh, you know, get rid of wooden roof, uh, get uh, uh, vents put on the houses, uh, uh, make other changes that will make the, the homes uh, able to withstand a fire. And then finally, like I said, planning. What are you going to do if there is a fire? Having a plan for how do you get people out of harm's way quickly is very important, and I think that that is not done nearly as much as needs to be done uh, for all these communities that already exist in places that are likely to burn. You know, one one observation I had, John, uh, if you think about it, I know you're familiar with uh, Montana. Um, a lot of the towns in Montana were built in the valleys 
away from the woods. Now they've spread into the woodlands. But like if you go to where downtown Bozeman is, downtown Livingston, downtown Missoula, none of them were built up in the forest. And that's because, you know, 100 years ago when they started those communities, um, they couldn't protect homes that were built in the forest. Mm. Uh, and uh, so it's interesting that initially in a lot of cases, uh, the original settlers picked locations for their towns that um, were less likely to be affected by fire. And, of course, all those early towns often had, like, um, irrigated pastures around them that also acted as a, uh, you know, a, a, a fire break that would keep fire from spreading, say, from a grassland into the buildings and so forth. There was a recent uh, bill passed by the House of Representatives uh, regarding wildfire last week. It was. Do you think it'll be of help to for a more sensible wildfire policy? Well, like all these things, it's a real mixture of good and bad stuff. Uh, part of the emphasis is, 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 again, on doing a whole lot more thinning and logging, which the evidence suggests is largely ineffective. And if you're going to do something, I'll, I'll give you an example, like prescribed burning, you have to do the maintenance on it. In other words, you have to come back and reburn that site over and mm -hmm. over and over again forever. So you have to be very strategic about saying, okay, where am I going to do this? Because if I don't burn it, three or five years is going to have more fuel. I've got lots of pictures of places I've photographed that were burned and come back three or five years later, and there's, like, more grass and burnable fuel there than before they uh, burned it. And so if you're only going to do it once, you're, you're making things worse. So you need to focus on doing that right around the, the towns and in places where you can do it safely. But um, the, the instead, this legislation, among other things, calls for treating uh, 20 million acres of Forest Service land and 30 million acres of private lands and so forth. I mean, that's a huge amount of logging that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in many cases, it may make the situation worse. Mm-hmm. Okay, George, well, I think we've run out of time once again, uh, but I really appreciate uh, this uh, opportunity to talk with you and uh, about wildfire. So uh, thank you again very much. It's been great to be talking with you. Our you bet. Thanks for, uh, for interviewing me. Our guest today has been George Werthner, professional photographer, ecologist, and author of several books about wildfire and other subjects relating to the natural environment. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these inter half-hour interviews, go online to kgvm.org or to our website at js-wilderness.com to see additional features. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell. <laughs>